Hello, and welcome to Christ Fellowship of Elizabeth. We're so happy that you decided to join us today. This is the teaching podcast from our Sunday worship service, recorded at the Liberty Center in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Our goal as a church is to love God, make disciples, and change the world. We hope that this message inspires you and helps to lead you deeper in your relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. Good morning, Christ Fellowship. So my name is Joel, and I'm excited to share today's message with everyone. Today we're getting into two books, Zechariah and Malachi. And I just want to say, I'm really excited about this because We've been digging into God's word throughout this whole year, right? Going book by book. And when we dig into the word, it's not just head knowledge. It's not just to gain more knowledge and be a smarter person. When you really dig into the word, you, you learn stuff that are supposed to change your life. Like the Bible says, seek me. Well, the Lord says, seek me and you shall find me when you seek me with all your heart. So when we're seeking his word, we find him. And we, what he does is he reveals his heart to us. So I want you to think about that as we're getting into the word today. It's not just head knowledge. We're seeking him so that he can reveal his heart to us. And we know that that is supposed to cause a change within ours. So the books are Zechariah and Malachi. And I'd like to explain something before we dive into these two books. The Bible split up into two parts, as you know, we all pretty much know this, right? Old Testament and New Testament. And the divider is the birth of Jesus. So the divider, what separates those two parts are the, is the birth of Jesus. Right now, we're going over the last two books of the Old Testament, Zechariah and Malachi. And in a couple of weeks, we'll get into the New Testament, uh, which are the Gospels. So Zechariah and Malachi are the last two books, as I mentioned. And chronologically, they're also the last two prophets that hear from God before God goes quiet. He goes silent for 400 years. Zechariah is the second to last prophet that hears from God and speaks to the people of Israel, of Judah. And Malachi is the very last one. And it's, it's, it's interesting because Malachi is the very last prophet, like I mentioned. And he actually speaks of the next prophet that's to come after him. That next prophet is John the Baptist. But that's not going to be for another 400 years. And the people don't know this. They don't know God's about to go quiet for a really long time. But we're seeing this. As we go into the, as we read the stories ourselves. Now, let's understand the situation a little bit. There were a group of Jewish people that were exiled and sent to Babylon. So, Jerusalem, right, this was the southern kingdom. The, Jerusalem was conquered, it was destroyed, basically, it was captured, and then, then it was destroyed. The temple that King Solomon actually uh, constructed was completely destroyed, and the people were sent in exile. We're in a situation where all these people pretty much came back already. And when they came back, they had this job to do. Their assignment was to rebuild the temple. Eventually, they did it. It was started. It stopped. Then they finally picked up again during the time of Zechariah, and they rebuilt the temple. And the temple is super important, right? Because that's where they worshiped God, and that's where they offered sacrifices. Those are two really important things for the people of Judah, of God's chosen people. So they rebuilt the temple where they worshiped God and offered sacrifices. And later they rebuilt walls around Jerusalem. During this time, God spoke through Zechariah and later on he spoke through Malachi as well. And both books include prophecy about the coming Messiah. Both books speak 
The Jewish people are waiting for this Messiah to come and be their hero. They're expecting a king to come and conquer the land and pretty much bring them back to the glory days of King David and King Solomon. Remember the situation. They're coming back from being captured and pretty much like having no protection. They didn't even have walls. And they're remembering these prophecies of a Messiah that's to come. And then they're receiving more of these prophecies of a Messiah that's to come. But what they're thinking of this is this earthly king that's supposed to come and being like a King David once again and, and, and bring this protection and this safety and put um, their, their, their city back into his glory. Uh, so that's what they're expecting. They were hoping for a Messiah to be this conquering king. As we look back, which is what we're going to do today, partly, we can see how Jesus fulfills all the prophecies of the Messiah. Yet it's not what they were expecting at all. They were waiting for this earthly king, but the Messiah is far greater than anything they would have thought. Jesus comes to save the Jewish people and everyone else, including us, from something uh, much greater, which is our sin. He's a conquering king, but he's conquering and defeating sin and death once and for all. That's something they would have never thought of. They, they, they just were not thinking about that. So my goal for today, there are two parts to the teaching. First, I'd like for us to look at just a few of the prophecies of the Messiah and how it clearly speaks of Jesus. So we're going to look at a few of those verses. And it's really important just because I want you to see that this was God's plan. And all along, he was talking about Christ. He was talking about his very own son. He was talking about Jesus. And we're going to see how it, he vividly makes that clear, especially in the hindsight. When you look back, you see it. But second, I like for us to think about why, why the Jewish people and everyone else, including us, needed this to happen. So we can look at it as the first part is what, what happened. And the second part is why, why it needed to happen. So please stick with me all the way through, not just on the what, but especially on that why as well. So let's dig in. The first scripture I'd like for us to read is from Zechariah 3, verses 8 and 9. And it says, listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you who are men symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. Or forgive me. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. I mean, even that, just that, I wasn't planning on talking about this part. But that last line right there, I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Like, obviously, he's talking about Christ on the cross. In one day, he removed the sting of death. But looking at the other parts, Joshua was the high priest during this time. And God gave Zechariah a vision about Joshua. It's a powerful foreshadowing of the gospel, which I highly recommend for you to go back Read this chapter, chapter three, if you have a chance, because um, it really, it foreshadows the gospel. But just looking at those two verses, there are so many references to the Messiah. The first one is servant. Like it's calling the Messiah, that, that verse is calling the Messiah servant. And we know that Jesus came as a servant. He said it to his disciples when he, he, when he was in his ministry, he told his disciples, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Like he himself is saying, I came to serve. And Paul later on in the book of Philippians says that Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. 
So the prophecy is talking about the Messiah being a servant, which, by the way, I wonder if the people of that time even, I wonder if they just skipped those words because they, they only looked at the things that they wanted, right? I mean, that's, 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 that's a message in itself. Like, kind of, we look at what we want from God. They were looking at these messianic prophecies, and I wonder if they even looked at the fact that he was coming as a servant. They wanted this strong, powerful, conquering king. But even back then, it was saying he was coming as a servant. Jesus came in the very nature of a servant. The second one, branch. He's called a branch. The Messiah is referred to as a branch in the book of Isaiah as well. That's another prophetic book. It says in Isaiah, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. See, the Messiah is supposed to be a descendant of King David and his father, Jesse. And we know reading the genealogy of Jesus right in the book of Matthew, the very first book, like God, God didn't want to skip a beat. He would say, all right, I've been quiet for 400 years, but now people, I want you to notice, look how this all connects. And we see it right away in the book of Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus came from the family line of King David and Jesse. We know that, that those are his ancestors. Now, the third stone, here the Messiah is referred to as the stone. And the book of Ephesians says this, that we are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. So just in these two verses from Zechariah that speak on the coming Messiah, we can look back and easily see it's clearly showing us that they're talking about Christ. They're talking about Jesus. Jesus brings all of these prophecies to fulfillment. That's just two verses. He brings it all to fulfillment. He came as a servant. He came from the family line of King David and Jesse. Jesus is called the chief cornerstone. See, the Jewish people at that time, they put their hope in the temple. The temple represented where God dwelled. At one point he did, and then in, during the first temple. But that's where they put all their, their, their hope because that represented where God's presence was, right? So their hope was in a building made of stones. So where they could work, and that's where they worship God and offered their sacrifices. We place our hope in Jesus, our cornerstone. It's crazy when you look at it because it's interesting how we actually become God's temple. Why? They were going to a temple to worship God and offer sacrifices. The temple is us because we within our hearts worship God and our life is supposed to be a living sacrifice. Like you see the way God was putting this all together in a way that they couldn't even fathom because they were looking at only the things they wanted to look at. And I know that's us too. Sometimes we only look at the things we want to look at. But you can see the way God had every little detail put in place. There was nothing that, there was no loose end that he left. And that's the beauty of the scriptures too. When you see it, God doesn't leave one loose end. There's no loose end in your life. There's not one loose end. There are things that might not make sense to you, but there's not one loose end in your life because God has every detail accounted for. So Jesus was the, is the cornerstone and our lives are supposed to be this offering. It's a sacrifice that we give. A second prophecy, Zechariah 9, verse 9, says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. So they love that part, righteous and victorious. But then look at this very next description. Lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Like, I'm pretty sure that when you think of a, of a righteous and victorious king, you're thinking, if he's riding anything, he's riding something big and strong, maybe a 
a bit right nowadays. I don't know what you're thinking of a Hummer. I don't know what you might be thinking of right now. But then I'm sure they were thinking of like the biggest horse ever. I'm, I'm not sure what they were thinking of. But it says he's, he's coming on a donkey. This is back then before Jesus is even born here on earth. See, here the Messiah is called king, righteous and victorious. But lowly means humble. Lowly means humble. Jesus came into this world with humble beginnings. He came in poverty. He was born in a barn. He couldn't even get a hotel room. He was born in a barn in a manger. That's a box where animals eat out of. That's where Jesus was born. Like, we see this pretty picture of the nativity scene, and it looks like a nice little thing. It's not a baby's bed. It's where, where animals eat from, and that's where Jesus was placed on his birth. Like, my children had a way better, like, start in their lives. They really had a beautiful, like, crib, but it's so beautiful. It's so strong, the crib, that we were able to keep it for all three kids because it's such good wood, right? And he was born in a manger. He was born in, 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 you know, in a lowly beginning, in a humble beginning. The last time Jesus entered Jerusalem, he actually entered Jerusalem riding a donkey. At this point, Jesus was well known by the people for his many miracles and his, and his words, his teachings. He was already known. And his disciples brought him a donkey and he rode the donkey riding into the city. And the people actually shouted because they already kind of knew him, right? They were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Like they were already recognizing him as someone great. And they were already hoping for him to be the Messiah. They saw his power. They saw the miracles. They saw he was different. But little did they know what kind of Messiah. They were right on the Messiah part. Little did they know the kind of Messiah he really is. He really was. And the moment he, he flipped everything, they stopped calling him Messiah. But there... They, he came in in that donkey, just like the prophecy says. So looking back, you can easily see that this is about Jesus. And the last prophecy I want to look at is in the book of Malachi. This one um, is important, right? Because, well, let's just read it. I will send my messenger, uh, 3 verse 1, sorry. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you're seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come says the Lord Almighty. This prophecy is speaking of two people. You know, when, when, you, when you start digging into I tell you, I love it. Like, I, I love how God puts everything, everything together. This is Malachi, the very last prophet from the Old Testament. There's not going to be another prophet speaking to the people for another 400 years. But Malachi is prophesying about the next prophet because the next prophet in 400 years is John the Baptist. He's the one that's going to prepare the way for the Lord. So Malachi has, receives a message about the next messenger, John the Baptist. But notice this. It says, he will prepare the way before me. There's another person, right? There's someone else. There's another messenger in this, in this verse. And it's not John the Baptist. This is, the first one's a reference to John the Baptist preparing the people for Jesus. But then it says, um, notice it says, prepare the way before me. This next person this next messenger says the messenger of the covenant and the messenger of the covenant is a reference to jesus this one will establish a new covenant between god and people see again this is obviously a reference to christ the one whom john the baptist prepared everything for john the baptist even himself knew that he was his whole life's purpose was to prepare the way for jesus that was coming for his arrival and this scripture reveals it and Jesus is that messenger of the covenant. He's the new covenant. He's the one that's bringing that new covenant, which was a covenant between God and us. And it was based on salvation through 
grace. Very different from the old covenant, where the old covenant, everything was about following the law, and they depended on sacrifices at the temple. They depended on sacrificing animals, and the animal would be the substitute receiving that consequence of sin, which is death. And as they received, those animals received that consequence, uh, the people's sins were forgiven temporarily. That's what was going on in the old covenant. And Jesus was coming with that new covenant. So you can easily see they're talking about two um, people there, John the Baptist and the Messiah, which is Jesus. See, these are the prophecies that speak of the Messiah. And we can see how these details make it really clear that it's about Christ. And God was making it very clear to us. But why are these prophecies important? Why are they important? See, the people of Judah were waiting for the Messiah. They were waiting for this conquering king. And they waited for centuries to the point where like, they were getting antsy. They were getting really like, tired of waiting. They were getting a little bit upset. They were getting impatient and frustrated. And in those times of Zechariah and Malachi, God's giving them that reminder once again, like this is coming. This person is coming. And they had to keep waiting for another 400 years. Jesus finally came. The scripture tells us that Jesus is going to come again. He's going to return. That's what the scripture says very clearly. And I have a question for you that I'm just wondering, what if Jesus, see, they were waiting for all that time. It was a 400-year gap. What if Jesus did not return for another 400 years? Would you be ready? That's a silly question, actually. It's a silly question for two reasons. Number one, in 400 years, nobody, I'm sorry, to burst your bubble, I hope you're not depending on uh, modern medicine to be like that excellent. In 400 years, none of us are going to be around. So if Jesus doesn't come for another 400 years, don't worry about it. You don't have to be ready then because like, we're not going to be here. We won't be here. So it's silly for that reason. And secondly, it's a silly question because we've already been waiting for 2,000 years. Like it's already been a 2,000 year waiting, waiting period for Jesus to come. They've been saying that the, the word says, that Jesus is coming back. And they were saying that from the beginning, right? It's already been 2,000 years. What's another 400 years going to change, right? Like, what's that, what's that going to do? But I'm asking this for a reason. I ask this because even after hearing all these prophecies about the Messiah, the people of Judah were not ready. Even after hearing all of these prophecies, all of these messages about the Messiah that's to come, the one they were expecting and hoping for, when he finally came, They were not ready. They were not ready. When Jesus came to earth, the people in Jerusalem did not recognize him. They did not accept him. In fact, they hated him. And finally, they killed him. The Messiah they were waiting for finally came. And what did they do? They did not recognize him. They did not accept him. They hated him. And then they killed him. And I get it. These weren't the same people, right? I mean, if we're talking about from Malachi's time to when Jesus actually was born, it's a 400-year gap. These obviously aren't the same exact people that heard the message. I get that. I get it. These are future generations. I understand. It's not the same exact people. These are descendants of those people that heard it. But either way, they should have been ready. They should have been ready. They weren't the same people that heard the prophecies, but this was their history. This is what they based their lives on. They based their lives, their entire life, was based on the scriptures. They were the ones that were still waiting for this Messiah. This wasn't foreign to them. They were still preaching this. They were still expecting this. They were still hoping for this. This wasn't something they didn't understand. If anyone should have been ready in the whole world for Jesus' arrival, it should have been the people of that generation. 
The people that should have recognized him and accepted him and loved him and followed him should have been, should have been the people of Israel. It should have been the Jewish people where Jesus actually came. It should have been them. It should have been the very people waiting for the Messiah, but they didn't. Instead, they denied him. They rejected him. They hated him. And they killed him. So let me ask a different question, similar to the first one, but a little bit different. If Jesus came, if he returned today, would you be ready? Think about that for a second while I take a quick water break. If Jesus returned today, would you be ready? See, a 2,000-year waiting period would not be a good excuse to not be ready. That wouldn't be good. Just like a 400-year waiting period for the people that heard that last prophecy, a 400-year waiting period for for that nation, for those people, that was not a good excuse not to be ready for Jesus' arrival. That wasn't a good excuse. It wasn't a good excuse to deny him or reject him or to hate him. There would be no good excuse to explain not being ready. In fact, there won't be an excuse at all because it would be too late. When Jesus came back and you weren't ready, guess what? It's already too late. It's already too late. Why? Because the secret is You don't have to be ready the day he comes. You have to be ready today. That's the secret. You don't have to be ready the day he comes. You have to be ready today. Once Jesus comes, it's too late to get ready. It's too late to be ready then. You can't say, I'll be, if I I see him coming, I'll be ready. No, if you're not ready right now, you won't be ready then. Proof, they weren't ready when he came. They weren't ready when he came. Even if Jesus arrived 400 years sooner, guess what? The people wouldn't have been ready. They could have come the day Malachi was saying those prophecies about the Messiah. Jesus could have come that very day and they wouldn't have been ready because the problem wasn't the timing. The problem was their hearts. It wasn't a matter of time. It was a matter of a condition of their hearts. The problem was their hearts. Look at this. During the time of Malachi, 400 years before Jesus' birth, God's chosen people constantly sinned against him. Like, if you read the book of Malachi, it's really short, but if you're reading it, you'll see they were sinning against him. God tells the people that they broke covenant. They broke covenant, meaning they broke the most important and valued um, agreements in their relationship. Like, when you get married, you're making a covenant. Breaking covenant would be like being unfaithful, right? They were being unfaithful in their relationship with God. They broke covenant. And I'm going to read a few of the examples that it gives of what it says in the book. I can't explain them just because it'll take long, but this is what the book of Malachi says. The people of Judah broke covenant through blemished sacrifices. They broke covenant through divorce. They broke covenant through injustice. They broke covenant through withholding tithes. In summary, they weren't faithful to God. Like to sum it all up, what that means was they weren't faithful to God. It means they didn't fear his holiness. I hope you hear this because this speaks to my heart. They didn't fear his holiness. That in itself, if you hold God to be holy, you should fear him. Fear him like a lion that's on your side. I think of that movie. It was Narnia, right? When, what's his name? Come on, help me out. 
Aslan, right? Like he's on your side. You don't have to be scared that he's going to hurt you, but you know you're going to be like you see, you recognize his power. And in the same way, you fear God out of it because of his holiness. Not that you're scared he's going to hurt you, but you recognize his power. They didn't fear his holiness. They didn't respect his ways. And they didn't honor his providence. Timing wasn't the problem. It was their hearts. Jesus could have arrived that very day. Their hearts weren't prepared. Their hearts weren't ready. 400 years later, when Jesus arrived, timing was still not the problem with their hearts. 2,000 years later, when Jesus, after Jesus arrived, timing is still not the problem. It's still the heart. The problem even today is still the heart. The problem has been and always be, will be a heart problem. That's the only thing it is. So the question is, do we want to be faithful to God? Do we want to be faithful to God? Do we fear his holiness? Do we respect his ways? Do we honor his providence? Think about that. Let that like sink in. Are we faithful to God? Do we fear his holiness, respect his ways, honor his providence? Right now, do you recognize Jesus as the son of God? Like you answer that for yourself. Do you honor, do you recognize Jesus as the son of God? Do you accept him as savior? Do you follow his ways as Lord? Do you love him as king of your heart? That's a personal thing that you really need to think about. See, we've talked about the coming Messiah and how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies given to the people. So again, we can call that part of the story, the what of the story. That's the what, like what was God doing? And, and obviously, what was God planning to do? And, and we know he planned to send Jesus, right? That's the what of the story. But now I want us to get into the why of the story. We're going to get into the why. Why did God plan to do this? And why did God plan to send Jesus specifically? Why did that happen? And the short answer, we all know the short answer is, right? The short answer is God had to because of sin. If God loves us, he had to, say, he had to have a plan in place to save us because of sin. That's the short answer. He had to do it because of sin. We already saw that in the book of Malachi. The people of Judah were not faithful to God at all. And throughout the entire history of the Bible, the entire history of the Jewish people, you can just say the entire history of like, human, the human race, right, is this. It's a pattern. The people sin against God. God warns them of their sin. The people continue to sin. Then God gives them a consequence. And what happens? The people repent. God forgives them. And then what happens? People begin to sin again. Like that pattern, that's, that's the age old like, history of the world. It's a pattern that you see. People sin. God gives a warning. People keep sinning, sinning. God sends a consequence. People repent. God forgives. And then people start sinning again. That's what happens. That's our history. See, that plan wasn't going to work. Back then, the people would offer sacrifices in temple, as I mentioned, for forgiveness of their sins, right? But that was a temporary thing. It didn't last forever. These sacrifices were, te- were temporary. And put, but for that moment, it would put them in the right place with God. But it was a temporary thing. As the animal being sacrificed would take the consequence of death, the people were forgiven of their sin. See, that was the part of the old covenant that we were mentioning. And Jesus was coming as the ultimate sacrifice. Like even that, if you look at that, you see the connection between the Old and the New Testament, I mean, the Old and the New Covenant. What God was doing was really foreshadowing what his plan was all along. 
Back then, it was based on sacrifices. The new covenant was ba- is based on one sacrifice, the final sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus' death on the cross. Before, there were anim- it was blood of the animal. Now it's blood of Christ, of God himself, of God himself. In a couple of weeks, we're going to get de- uh, deeper into the Gospels and what Jesus' sacrifice means to us. But I want us to think about this a little bit even now. Why do we need it in the first place? Like, what is the problem of sin? What is the problem of sin? And it's worth thinking about because, ready? It's worth thinking about because the better we understand the problem of sin, the better we can understand the gift of grace. As a matter of fact, you can't understand the gift of grace if you don't understand what's our sin problem to begin with. That's how it starts. The better you understand the problem of sin, the better you understand the gift of grace. This is our view of sin, ready? We don't view sin the way, the way like it is at its root. I don't think we view sin, at, or I'll speak for myself and let's see if you guys join me. I don't think I always view the root of sin for what it actually is. We view sin as this, the bad things we get caught doing, right? What are the bad things that get caught doing? The pain and hurt we cause others, right? Uh, the things that we feel bad for, right? So those are the things that we usually consider sin. The things we often dismiss are the bad things we don't get caught doing. We dismiss that quick. I didn't get caught. All right, I'm good. The bad things we don't get caught doing. The small things that don't really hurt others, right? It's a small thing. It didn't really hurt them. It's not a big deal. If they were in my situation, they would have understood. The things we do wrong, but justify in our minds to not feel bad about. Those are the things we often dismiss and we don't really count as sin in in our perspective. But this is the right perspective of sin. And there are two things I want to mention. The first one is this, ready? All sin is against God first. All sin is against God first. In other words, Sin is much deeper than we think. All sin is against God for us. It's way deeper than we actually think. We often look at it just superficially, looking at just the earthly consequences that we get. But sin is way deeper than just the earthly consequences you're seeing because all sin is against God first. Let's look at King David. Right? So King David was a great king, right? I mean, that's, that's who they looked at. That's, they were hoping for the Messiah to be like King David and that's in, in when he arrived, to bring it back to the glory days of King David. He was a great king, right, who loved God. He actually loved God. But he was no stranger to sin, none whatsoever. He was not a stranger to sin. He had some really bad moments in his life. One day he slept with a woman that wasn't his wife, Bathsheba, right? And when he did that, Like, not only was he cheating on his many wives, which, by the way, that was already like a whole other pile of sins that he had. He had plenty of wives, right? But not only was he cheating on, like, wait, how many sins are those then? Because I don't know how many wives he had and all that stuff. But just that in itself was horrible, right? But then to make matters worse, he tried creating a sneaky, deceptive plan to cover it up. Because what happened? Bathsheba got pregnant, but her husband wasn't there. Her husband was in war, like, my, my, my guy was protecting the nation and the king who should have been there was actually sleeping with his wife behind his back. So to try to cover up this messy situation, he tried to set it up to make it seem like Uriah was his name. He came back and actually slept with his wife and then, oh, it was his baby. But that, that plan failed. 
completely failed. And then after that, because it failed, he started to include other people to cover up this problem. And what he did was he set up the way for Uriah to actually die. So he sent them back to um, the fight, right? And he had like the general or whoever was in charge to put him in the front line so he would die. How he, how he thought that was going to fix the problem, I don't know. But you look at all these things he's doing. This is a really horrible situation. He hurt Bathsheba. He hurt the million wives he had. I don't know that number. All those people, right? All those wives. He hurt all of them. Obviously, he hurt Uriah. He killed a man. He had a man killed because of that. He involved, he sinned, obviously, against the people that he had involved in this mess now, his military leaders. He involved them in his mess. And then you can even take it further. He, like, he sinned even against his nation because he's the ruler of the kingdom. He's supposed to be representing God, right, and ruling from a, from a godly perspective, a godly way, and yet he's doing horrible things like this. So he sinned against a whole lot of different people. But then look at what he says when God convicts him of these horrible acts. Look what he says. He says in Psalm 51, verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This is his response to God when God convicted him of what he did. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. See, obviously David knows that he sinned against many people. He knows he hurt a lot of different people. But here, he's recognizing the depth of sin. It's an offense against God. We usually feel bad about our sin because of the consequence we have to deal with, right? The humiliation we have to deal with when, if we get caught, the hurt it causes the people that we love, you know, the pain it causes them. Those are real consequences that we have to deal with. I'm not saying those aren't like legitimate consequences that we should grieve over, right? Because that's, that's guilt. We feel that guilt. But those are the things that we usually grieve over. The deepest problem of sin is actually that it's breaking covenant with God. That's the deepest part of sin, that it's breaking covenant. When you cheat on your wife, you cheat on God first. When you lie to someone, you're lying to God first. If you hate someone, you hate God first. Like, if you curse someone out, you're cursing out God first. Like, if you bring physical pain to someone, you're bringing physical pain to God first. Like, I mean, that probably doesn't translate that well because he's not physical but you get what i'm saying like the pain you're causing to that person you're bringing in god first all sin is sin against god before it's sin against anybody else our sin hurts god to go a little bit um deeper into the example of david david sinned against his many wives which was already sin against bathsheba against uriah against the people he involved in his plot to kill uriah against his nation right that he was ruling God felt the consequence of each and every person that was hurt by King David because he loves those people. He loved those people. So if you look at it, it's like the consequence of sin is twofold, where it's, it's hurting God in two ways. Not only are you not giving him the respect he deserves, but on top of that, it's even all the hurt that everyone else feels, he feels because he loves them. So it's a twofold consequence. The offense of a, as a rebellion against him and the offense as a harmful act against others. So do we really view sin as an offense against God first? Do we really view it that way? If I can be honest, I think this is something that I understand to an extent. But if I'm honest, I know I need to grow in this too. I know I have to grow in this. Like I, I have to grow in this understanding of like really letting it change my life, of viewing it as 
way, all sin, no matter if I get caught or if I don't get caught, whether I hurt people or I don't hurt people, whether it's small or big, all sin is a, is a sin against God first. I know I have to grow in that because then if, if I really viewed it that way, I would sin less. I wouldn't, you know, I, I would sin less. If I really took it to heart, the fact that sin is utterly an offensive thing against God is really a slap to God's face. I wouldn't even like entertain any idea of sinning against them. I would never try to trick myself to think it's okay to do something because I would realize no matter what I'm doing, if it's wrong, it's, a, it's an offense against him. Of course, I hate sin. I mourn over my sin, just like Jesus says in the Beatitudes, right? He says that we should mourn, like we mourn over our sin. I, I, I know my sin is always before me, like David says, even in, in Psalm 51, he says, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. I know what, the, what it is to feel that guilt of my sin. I get that. But I'm saying I'm still standing here as a sinful man. That shows that I don't fully grasp this understanding that it's a sin against God first. It's an offense against him. It's an offense against him. So I ask you, do you really view your sin as an offense against God first? Here's a mental exercise to think about that question. Here's a mental exercise. Let's say for just one day, your sin had no earthly consequence. Your sin had, it wouldn't hurt anybody. Your sin had no earthly consequence. How likely is it that you would stop yourself from sinning? If there was no earthly consequence, how likely is it that you would stop yourself from sinning? Imagine the only consequence to sin is that it, it offends God. It's the only consequence, but there's no earthly consequence. How would you live? How would you live? See, we take sin way too lightly, even with the horrible consequences we, do, we deal with here on earth already. And yet, the worst part of sin isn't even those consequences. The worst part of sin is that it offends God. It's a disrespect to God. And this leads me to the second point. What sin really is, it's rebellion against God. See, the first part we were talking about how deep sin is, it's way deeper than you can ever imagine. And the second part is sin is a rebellion against God. It's way, it's way wider than you can ever imagine. Sin is wider than we could ever think. Like I mentioned before, we all have a list of things that we consider sin or not sin, right? What we decide we're going to entertain or not. What we try to justify or not. But sin isn't just deeper than we can imagine. It's way wider than we could ever imagine. Here are some examples of, of the width of sin. Ready? We can sin against God with our thoughts. We can sin against God with our words. We can sin against God with our actions, right? And some of these are obvious, right? When no, we can sin against God when no one else sees or finds out. We can sin against God when we do good things with wrong motives. We can sin against God when good motives lead to bad things. We can sin against God when doing nothing bad at all, except for refusing to do a good that God's telling you to do. Like those are all like out of the box things that you wouldn't really consider to be like a direct sin, but it's sin just the same. I have a few examples from scripture that I'd like to share. Things of, of when people sin in ways that aren't as obvious as David committing adultery or lying or killing, but it's sin just the same. And it's showing you the width of sin. So think about Jonah. Jonah um, was a prophet in the Old Testament, and God told him to go to Nineveh to preach against it, to tell them, listen, you need to turn away from your sin. 
And Jonah didn't want to do it. So what did he do? He ran away from God. He ran away. From, he went the opposite direction. If Nineveh was this way, he ran the opposite way, right? Like 180, exactly like the opposite direction. And he ran away from God. It was basically because of pride, right? Jonah did not want to do what God told him to do. He wanted to run away from it. His running was an act of rebellion. Like what did he, what did he physically do that was wrong? He didn't hurt someone, right, directly or anything like that. No, it was basically pride, but it was him not doing the very good thing that God wanted him to do. Whether it be, and in this case, it was due to pride, but we could technically run away from God for many other reasons, right? Like in this case, it was pride, but it could be fear that makes us run away from what God wants us to do. It could be indifference, like you just don't care. It could be laziness, or it could be just having other priorities. But at the end of the day, it's all rebellion, and we're running away from the one thing that God's telling you to do. And that's a perfect example from Jonah. Another example is Ananias and Sapphira. At the start of the church, like this is the beginning of the church, Jesus had already resurrected. He already ascended and went back to heaven. The Holy Spirit already came down, and those those first church leaders were moving by the Spirit, doing great things. The churches started, and there was a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira who sold a piece of their property. They sold a piece of their property. And what they did was, they took, that, they took what they sold, the money that they got, and they gave some of that money to those church leaders in the beginning, right? That first church. Sounds like a great thing, right? Like up front, that sounds like an excellent thing. But what happened? What happened was they lied about something. They lied. So in the midst of doing this good thing, um, when they got the money that they got from the sale of that piece of the property, they kept some, some for themselves, which is okay. Nobody's forcing them to sell that and give money. But when they gave the money, they pretended as if, or they lied, as if all of the money from that sale is what they were giving. They said, all right, I got this much. I'm giving you this much. I'm giving you all of it. They lied. And this is the beginning of the church. Like, you're trying to lie against the Holy Spirit. God's just constructing this. That's a really bad choice, by the way. Like, you're testing the Spirit in that case. That's crazy. Their lie made it a sinful act. They were in the middle of doing a good thing. You mean to tell me they couldn't use, like the church couldn't use that money they were giving, that they were getting? Of course they could. But it was, it was out of a lie. And look at what Paul, Peter says to Ananias. He says, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Because all sin is a sin against God first. And the last example, which, like I tell you, it's a beautiful thing when you look at Scripture, right? Adam and Eve. Consider the very first sin ever committed by humans. Adam and Eve were the first to do it. And then they're the ones that brought sin into this earth. And they're the ones that made us inherit our sinful nature. And what did they do? What was the horrible thing that they did? They ate an apple. They ate an apple. The horrible thing that they did, they ate an apple. Like, this doesn't seem harmless at all. It really doesn't seem harmless. It almost sounds like a good thing. Like, wait, hold up. You ate an apple from a tree that God made, and there was no decay, no decomposition yet, right? There was no, nothing was dying yet. Like, and you ate an apple from that tree, and this was a bad thing. But the act of eating the apple wasn't sin itself. Adam and Eve, sin was the act of disobedience. Because Adam knew directly from God's mouth, don't eat from that tree. 
So I love how God does it. Like right from the beginning, we get confused or we try to confuse or change the definition of what sin is. But from the very beginning, like this is the, <laughs> this is the Bible, right? The very beginning, that little point where it's like, uh, has a little gap right there, boom. God's saying, this is what sin is. I'm making it very clear to you. I'm making it very crystal clear to you. With an example that almost seems absurd. The sin is that they rebelled against my word. They disobeyed me. I gave a direct um, you know, word and they went against it. They ate an apple, but I told them, don't eat from that tree. So their act of disobedience was sin. Their, their act of deliberate rebellion against God was the sin. God made it very clear to us what sin is, is any act of rebellion against his word. It's any act of disobedience against his word. Sin is way wider than you can ever imagine. You can try to cover up your acts with good things and those good things are fleeting. Those good things could be sin because if it's, if it's an act of rebellion, it's still against God. It's still sin. You can try to dress it up however you want, but you can't con God. God knows your heart. He knows. He knows what you're hiding behind. He knows what good deeds you're trying to cover up your bad deeds with because your bad deeds can't get covered up by your good deeds. You can't tip the scale to, to try to unbalance, like make an, unba- you know, uh, have your good override your bad and make, make it like pop up. You can't do that. Your bad deeds cannot be covered up by your good deeds. And if you're thinking, if you're still thinking that, it's because you're not understanding the depth of your sin. You're not understanding the offense that it is to, to rebel against the creator of the universe. You're missing the picture of how bad this really is. It's a rebellion against the creator. It's, it's disobedience against the one that made you. It's not just hurting somebody around you physically. It's hurting the creator of this universe. God made it very clear from the beginning what sin really is. Sin is anything you do against his will. The ultimate struggle we have in life is this. Submitting to God's will versus like living at our will. If you don't understand the biggest battle in your life, it's that one. Submitting to God's will or living out your own will. Obeying God or disobeying God. Living God's way or living your way. At the end of the day, you can sum up sin to be like it's always rooted in pride. It's either God's way or my way. That's what it comes down to. In essence, sin is any form of rebellion or disobedience against God. Um, I mentioned that we can narrow it down to any act of pride. Oh, and there's another way, like it's placing our will above God's will, making God small and making yourself big. Like in any way, in any act, in anything you do, in any thought you have, in any word you say, if you're making God small and making yourself big, that's it. That's an act of sin. It's saying to God, you don't deserve the respect or the fear, or the glory, or the credit, or the faithfulness, or the loyalty, or the honor, or the recognition, or the acceptance, or the love that you claim that you deserve, that you ask for. You don't deserve it. That's what you're saying when you sin. And this can only be resolved by the ultimate sacrifice of Christ, right? 
See, the blood of an animal isn't strong enough to wash away the stain of our sin. Because the stain of your sin is way too deep. Because it's a sin against God. So the blood of an animal can't cleanse that. It can't wash that away. Our good deeds can never tilt the scales and outweigh the amount of evil in our rebellion. Instead, God must provide the sacrifice, and that sacrifice is himself. I want to read uh, just two more uh, scriptures. Zechariah 13, verse 1. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. In just one day, God puts this all together. And he resolved the problem of sin, opening a fountain that wasn't opened before. It wasn't opened in the old covenant. He's talking about this new covenant. He's opening a fountain that's finally strong enough to wash away our sin and the consequence of it. And this is, of course, talking about Jesus on the cross, which is salvation through grace. And the last verse I want to read, Zechariah 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of the Lord. I want to say this. This last verse speaks of a future repentance that the people of that time couldn't fathom. They couldn't understand. They didn't get it. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Repentance is an understanding of of a personal problem of sin. I'll say it again. Repentance is understanding your personal problem of sin. It's understanding that all sin is against God. It's way deeper than you can imagine. And it's understanding that it's wider than you can ever imagine. Because any, anything that's rebelling, rebelling against God is sin. And repentance is what is saying, I see all that. I understand. It hurts me. I'm convicted. Holy Spirit, I feel you talking to my heart. I see that it's horrible. I need to turn away from that because it's offending you, God. That's what repentance is. It's not just saying, okay, that's sort of bad. You know what? Maybe tomorrow or you know what? I'm, I'm kind of wrestling with that. No, it's recognizing that it's an offense against God and saying, I want to turn away from it. If you're not turning away from it, you're not repenting. If you're not turning away from sin, you're not repenting. Please don't get lied to. If you're living in sin, you're not repenting. If you're living in, in, in sin, if you're constantly diving into sin, you're not repenting. Where are you standing with God? Your life should reflect it. Have you repented? Do you have a repentant heart towards God? Does sin hurt you? Does sin hurt you because you know it hurts the God that you love? Because if it doesn't hurt you, I don't know if you can really say honestly that you love God. Does it hurt you? I'm not saying you're going to live a perfect life. I, I hope you don't think I'm standing up here. I know I sin. It hurts me when I do. Believe me. It hurts me when I do. I'm a flawed man covered by grace. But I know that my sin hurts the God that I love and I don't want to live in sin. I want to have a repentant heart towards God. Is your heart repentant towards God? Do you view your sin as an offense against God first? If everyone can close their eyes 
I want you to take this opportunity just to get personal with God for a moment. And as I already asked, do you have a repentant heart towards God? More time isn't going to make you ready. I promise you this. If there's one thing I can tell you, more time does not make you ready. The time to repent is now. You can't get right first in order to come to God. You need to come to God before you get right. He's the one that makes you right. He's the one that puts you in right standing with him. His Holy Spirit is what starts to convict you and show you what's truly right. He's the one that even gives you the grace that, that even allows you to even live right. It all starts with repentance. Do you have a repentant heart towards God? Here's another question. And this could be for you even if you already have a relationship with Christ. Is there any sin you need to confess to God? Please don't pretend that you don't have sin. You don't need to shout it out right now. I'm talking about you speaking to God from your heart. Is there any sin you need to confess to God? Is there any speci- anything specific you need to repent from? Again, please don't pretend that you don't sin. Is there anything you need to pre- uh, repent from specifically? David said, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. All acts of rebellion are sin against God. There's nothing too big or too small. In other words, it all counts. It all counts. And let me tell you, you think the small doesn't matter. It's always start small. King David should have been at war. But something started small there. King David started with one wife. And then got two. And then got three. And then started sleeping with women that weren't even his wives. His his wife. It all counts. If you sense the Holy Spirit Spirit tugging at your heart to repent, I'm even going to invite you to come up to the altar. And I want you to take this opportunity to talk to God. And you're not talking to anyone else here. You're talking to God. And I want you just to speak to him and tell him, God, I'm ready. God, I don't want to live in sin. God, I see the depth of it. I see how much it hurts you. God, I want to repent from sin. I want to turn away from it. I want to live a way that honors you and glorifies you and respects you. I want to bring you glory. I want my body to be a temple that worships you. I want my life to be a sacrifice offered to you. I don't want to offend you anymore. I don't want to rebel anymore. I don't want to be disobedient. I want you to forgive me for my sins. Like, like David says, my sins are ever before me. Against you, Lord, have I sinned. You only. Again, wherever you are, just take this opportunity to recognize Jesus. Accept Jesus. Follow him. Love him. Take this time to confess. Don't make excuses for, for them. Don't try to justify them. Don't compartmentalize sin. Where we try to put it in the box and say, this is okay, because I don't do this on Sunday. This is okay, because this is small compared to the good thing that I do. This is okay, because no one sees it. This is okay, because no one gets hurt by it. This is okay, because my, 
bad is outweighed by my good. Don't compartmentalize sin. Understand that all of it at its root and its depth is a sin against God. It's an offense against the creator of this universe. It's, a, it's an offense against your savior, your Lord. Those are all lies of the devil when we believe that we can compartmentalize and keep certain sins in our lives as if it's okay. But it all counts as all rebellion against God. There's a verse that is always dear to my heart. And it says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. Lord, I pray that you speak to our hearts even now, Lord. Speak to my heart. Speak to everyone else that's here. Speak to those that are watching online. Speak to our hearts and reveal to us if there's any offensive way in you, Lord, if there's a speck of sin that dishonors you, Lord, point it out. Show us. Show us, Lord. Reveal it to us so that we can turn away from it. So we can turn away from it, God, and honor you with our lives. Lord, you created us. You deserve glory. You deserve respect. You deserve fear. You deserve honor. You deserve praise. You deserve for our lives to glorify you. Lord, help us turn away from our sin. And now I just want to pray for for everyone, for the young lady here, for everyone here, if you're watching online. Lord, I pray for all of us, God. I pray that you help us turn away from our sins, help us repent and turn away. Help us see it for what it really is. It's an offense against you. It's any act of rebellion. Help us see how deep it is, how wide it is. Convict our hearts to repent turning away from the sin that we live in, turning away, put a burning within our hearts to not live that way anymore. Put a conviction inside of our hearts, Lord, to not be content or okay with even entertaining anything that the enemy dangles in front of us. Not even entertaining it, Lord, but put it in our hearts, Lord, a burning to turn away even from looking, even from smelling, even from touching, even from Taking one step closer, Lord, make it burn inside of our hearts so much that even if we get close to it, it feels like fire burning us and we realize we need to turn away because this this honors my God that I love. Help us also see the beauty of repentance comes what's right after it. The beauty of repentance is when we turn away from our sin, Lord, right after that, we receive your grace your forgiveness. Your word says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Lord, you're a God that forgives. You're a God that purifies. You wash away our sins. But I know that we need to turn away from it first. So Lord, as we close this time, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you continue to work in our lives, constantly reminding us how utterly offensive sin is. Even though this world may be full of it, it's no excuse for us to live in it. Even though the world might say it's okay to do this or do that, Lord, I go by your word and I see what's wrong and I see what's right. 
and I go by your spirit that speaks to my heart and I, I know what's right. Help us live in a way that honors you and shines holiness in the midst of a sinful world. Shines your righteousness in, a, in the midst of a sinful world. Not because there's anything, not because we get any of that credit or it's because of us, but it's because of you living in us and it's of us just, just living in the way that you told us to live. We love you, Lord. Help us live a way that shows it, that proves it by following your commandments. In Jesus' name we pray. Christ Fellowship of Elizabeth is a Christian community whose mission is to love God, make disciples, and change the world. You can learn all about us by visiting cfofelizabeth.com. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at the Liberty Center in Elizabeth, as well as at various times throughout the week. If you'd like to see a video recording of the full worship service this teaching came from, you can watch on demand on our YouTube channel, and you can join us live online every week by visiting cfofelizabeth.live. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. Make sure you subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher so you never miss an episode. See you next time.